Well, we are continuing our study through the book of Mark. Let's review a couple of things. Mark, the, the Gospel of Mark was assumed to be written from Peter's perspective. Uh, Mark would take notes and translate from Peter. You'll find that later in the Bible. And so many assumed that these are his notes and his reflections through Mark and about his time with Jesus. And this book was written primarily to Roman Gentiles who were believers in that time. So you're not going to find a lot of Old Testament scripture, not a, not a lot of Jewish references because they didn't care. They didn't know. This focuses on the miracles and the faith that is evident and what is needed to follow Christ. So, in fact, last week we saw a great example of that, right? No faith in what, what God did. So now we're looking at further on. Jesus last week returned to his hometown. They threw him out, tried to push him off a cliff. How many of you have heard the phrase, you can't go home again? That was kind of like Jesus. But as, God, as we said, God always offers everyone a second chance. How many of you responded to the gospel the very first time you heard it? Okay, one. God gives everybody a second chance. Are you glad that God gives you second and third and fourth chances to receive his truth? Therefore, he knew that because of their lack of faith, he wasn't going to do any more miraculous signs because no matter how many he did, it didn't matter. People weren't responding to it. So he travels on. And as he travels on, he did find that many did have faith and were willing to believe. And so when what was happening, now he's beginning to send his disciples out. It wasn't just him. It was him plus 12 others. He sent them out to accomplish what he was accomplishing as one person. Mark 6, 7. We'll pick it up there. It says, And he called his 12 disciples together and sent them out two by two with authority to cast out evil spirits. He told them to take nothing with them except the walking stick. No food, no traveler's bag, no money. He told them to wear sandals but not to take even an extra coat. When you enter a rich village, be a guest in only one house. And if a village doesn't welcome you or listen to you, shake off its dust from your feet as you leave. It's a sign that you have abandoned that village to its fate. So the disciples went out telling all they met to turn from their sin. And they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with oil. Well, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the encouragement that your word gives us as well as the wisdom and the direction it gives us. And I pray that as we talk about your word this morning that you rightly divide it through me that everything we say and do be exactly what you want said and done so that when we leave we'll know that we've heard from God's word. Not just people but what God's word actually says. So this is your time Lord. We ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before we look at the verse, at this verse by verse Remember, Jesus had spent considerable amount of time with his 12 guys, all right? He was teaching them and training them and allowing them to witness everything he had done. Now it was time to actually put into practice what he had learned. He called them to be fishers of men, and now he's giving them that opportunity. And he spent time specifically them to give them that special attention. Mark 3, 13, we go back a couple of chapters. It says, afterwards, Jesus went up on a mountain and called one called the ones he wanted to go with him. And they came to him. Then he selected 12 of them to be his regular companions, calling them apostles. He sent them out to preach, and he gave them authority to cast out demons. Mark 4.10 says, Later, when Jesus was alone with the 12 disciples and with the others who were gathered around, they asked him, What do your stories mean? So the entire time he is spending with his disciples, he's teaching them, 
training them, allowing them to witness what he had done so that they were able to carry out the same thing in greater number. If you remember in, in the Gospels, Jesus says, you'll do greater miracles than me. And it wasn't meaning greater in quality, it was meaning greater in quantity. Obviously, since there's more of us, we're able to accomplish a lot more than one did or 12 did. So God wants each one of us to learn and to grow and then to actually do what we've been called to do. So now it was time for these guys to go out on their own and see what God can do through them. Now, can you imagine they had seen Jesus do these things, but they never did it themselves. They were witnesses. Now Jesus is saying, okay, now it's your turn. I want you to go out and I want you to do what you've seen me do and watch what God does through you. Now, if you've been watching the, the TV show, The Chosen, how many have watched that show? I'm going to show you a little clip here. This is an example of what could have happened when Jesus sent these guys out. You'll look at the astonishment on their faces as they, they perform these, these miracles. Now, there's no, there's no audio. You won't hear much audio with it. There'll be a little bit, but it's mostly the expressions on their face when they do these miracles. Go ahead, if you would do that, Brad. Can you imagine doing that? I'm a visual guy. I think that a lot of folks are more visual now than than reading. And you get a, a visual image of what God could be doing at that time. Imagine God working through you the way he was working through those 12. Why not? And when he does, we should all have the same look of astonishment on our faces. We prayed for a lot of things this morning. And I believe God's doing a work. Now you have to believe that too. And we want to have that next week when you come in and tell me what God did. We shouldn't be amazed, but we're going to be astonished at what God did. So now let's look at this account verse by verse. Verse 6, or verse 7 of chapter 6. And he called his 12 disciples together and sent them out two by two with authority to cast out evil spirits. Now they had been taught, they experienced, now it's their turn. Now the word sent is the Greek word apostine or apostolo in the Greek, which has the idea of official representation. And it gives us the word apostle, obviously. It means to send someone out with a special commission to represent another and to accomplish his work. They weren't doing their own thing. God sent them out and they were representing Jesus in all that they did. And we taught earlier that the word apostle has two connotations. One of those, the apostles are those who had physically seen Jesus physically seen his resurrection, and physically talked to him after he resurrected. That connotation no longer exists because none of us have physically seen Jesus. The other connotation is when God calls apostles in Ephesians, those are the ones who are called to take Christ's message to another land or another culture. Examples would be missionaries, those who are called to plant churches when there are no churches, That's our current day apostle. When Ephesians says he gave some to be apostles and prophets and teachers, that's what the apostle means. It doesn't mean you actually saw Jesus. It means you were commissioned by Jesus to start a new work somewhere. Whether it's down the street, across the world, you're called out by God to start something that has not already been started. 
Now, the, the two-by-two custom, that was a Jewish custom. That was not something that was deliberate. That was a Jewish custom that they did. Mark 11, verse 1, it says, And Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem. They came to the town of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Mark 14, 13, Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem to make the arrangements. And two-by-two two was used to establish the truthfulness of their words. Deuteronomy 17, 6 says there always must be at least two or three witnesses. It was also easier to, or safer to travel with two or three people. Ecclesiastes 4, 9. Two people can accomplish more than twice as much as one. They get a better return for their labor. If one person falls, the other can reach out and help. But people who are alone when they fall are in real trouble. So there's a lot of reasons Jesus sent them out two by two. One, to verify that two people come back and said they saw the same thing. That's a witness. You need two people. Safety in numbers. And God sent out two people in pairs. And God used these guys to validate their ministry and to allow people to see the power of God in operation. In every one of those clips, not only did you see someone being healed, but you saw someone preaching. Miracles and the miraculous was designed, as we mentioned many times, to get people's attention, to allow them to see that something is happening in here. And then God uses their attention to share the gospel with them. Every time they did a miracle, every time the disciples did a miracle, they had an opportunity to share the gospel. And as we find out, a lot of people did believe once they shared the gospel. Mark 6, verse 8 says, He told them to take nothing with them except a walking stick, no food, no traveler's bag, no money. He told them to wear sandals, but not to take even an extra coat. Part of the ministry, and part of any ministry, is to build your faith in God calling you to do it, and that God will provide what you need when you need it. How many have ever had everything handed to them before you started doing something for God? You knew how everything was going to turn out in the end. It never works that way. When God calls us to do anything, he promises that he will provide what you need to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Whether it's your talent, your ability, your resources, your food, rest, whatever you need, God said he is going to provide it and you have to believe it. He's not going to stack you up with all that stuff before you start. He's going to give it to you the minute you put your foot in the water. And the only way to experience that is to start with nothing and allow God to provide along the way. If you start with a whole bunch of resources, you don't have to trust God for anything. But the minute you walk out of your house with nothing, and, God, and just like Abraham, God says, start walking. Okay? Start walking and I'll provide as you walk. And the only way to experience and have faith is to see God do it for you as you're stepping out. Not only was God going to work through them in the miraculous and through their teaching, he was also going to build their faith in the process. You saw their expressions. When God says, don't take anything with you, I'll provide everything you need, and I'll also be doing the miracles through you while you're out there. God wants to build your faith, not only what God calls you to do in building other people's faith, God will build your faith as he works through you in that particular situation. He never promises you a great ending. He promises to provide what you need to get to the end. When we step out in faith to do something and we feel that God is leading us, we always feel what? Ill-equipped, not good enough. 
Not sure how we're going to do it, right? How, do I, how am I going to find the time and the energy and the resources? If God's calling you, these are the things that God will give you as you do it, not before you do it. Now, why was Jesus so specific? One pair of sandals, one coat, or some versions use a tunic. Well, the sandals, remember the sandals in the desert? They didn't wear out, right? God was referring back to that, Deuteronomy 29, 5. It says, for 40 years I led you through the wilderness, yet your clothes and your sandals did not wear out. So it was a callback to what God did in the past. Okay, guys, I did it for them for 40 years. I'm going to do it for you for as long as you're out. And if you've ever been over there, it gets cold at night. And a second coat or a second tunic would be beneficial, right? However, God wanted them not to trust that they had a place to sleep with enough blankets. He wanted them to trust that he'd had a place prepared for them to stay inside. If you take an extra coat, I don't have to worry about finding a house. I'll sleep out here. I have two coats to cover me. God says, no, one coat. I'm going to provide a house for you to stay in. There's going to be one. You don't need to sleep outside. Just take one coat. God says, no food. Well, God's going to have people there to feed you along the way. When you step into a town, God will already have a house set up, a family set up, food set up for you when you get there. Don't take it with you. Again, reminiscent of the wilderness trek of the Jews. Deuteronomy 29.6 says, You had no bread or wine or other strong drink, but he gave you food so that you would know that he is the Lord your God. So if you remember what happened when Israelites tried to hoard food, save it for a couple of days, God said, turn it all moldy. I don't want you to save food. I don't want you to stack it up. I want you to trust me for tomorrow. Don't prepare doesn't mean we don't prepare things, but if I'm calling you to do something, don't figure out, you've got to have everything figured out before you start. Because if you do that, you're never going to start. God says, you start, if I'm calling you, I'm going to provide what you need along the way. Then there's the no traveler's bag. Most commentaries think that this is, they call it a beggar's bag. God did not want them begging for anything when they were out there. We'll never beg you for anything from the front we'll let you know the need and trust God to use you to meet that need in other words when you have a need you don't go begging people who do you talk to God God Lord I, I need this what's the Bible say I know what you need even before you ask so when God knows you have a need what's the Bible say he's going to meet the need doesn't meet the want he meets the need and if you're doing something for God and you have a need in the process of doing what God calls you to do God promises to meet that need if these guys carried a lot of cash, they wouldn't need tr to trust God for a place to stay or for food. If I have enough money, I'm going to stay at the local hotel if nobody has a room for me. If I have a lot of money, I can just buy whatever I need when I get there. We saw a thing on the internet the other day. It says, if Paul could see the church today, we'd be getting a letter. <laughs> Probably not a good letter because I think America's in that, that same type of boat now. We have everything that we think we need, right? What's the revelation say? You have all these things, you have all this money and stuff, you think you're blessed, but you're not. And a lot of times we think that what we have is because of God's blessing. And while it's true, 
we shouldn't rely on the material things we have. We should rely on God. And since we have all these things, we don't need God to miraculously provide it. We can just go out and buy it. Lord, I need a new book. I just go out and buy it. I don't have to pray about it. I'm just going to go buy it. Lord, I need to accomplish this in the ministry, but I, we have enough money. I, I need you to do that. We can just do it. We don't need your help, God. Well, as you know, we're in a, we're in a situation now where we need God's help with that circle that's coming and all that stuff, you know. So this is a situation, God's ministry, God's got to provide something for us. So whether it's a move or a radical change in the township plans, this is something we got to trust God for. So we don't have enough money to just go out and do that. But God does. And God knows what, where we're going to be next year, two years from now, five years from now. And if the Lord tarries, this church is going to go on, however long that is. And so God's got to provide a place for us. God's got to provide the funding for the place. All that stuff, God's got to provide. And we're in a position now where we just can't sit back and say, well, no problem, we have it covered. Because we don't. For us to build, if you look at it naturally, to move and build is just astronomical compared to the size of our church. But God. Right? Are we worried? No. Are we fearful? Nope. Because God's got it. And God was telling the, and the disciples, I got it. Just go out and do what I told you to do. I will provide what you need every step of the way. And verse 10 says, when you enter each village, be a guest in only one house. That seemed like a strange request, but this was designed to give them a good reputation, the disciples. Why? How would you feel if you invited someone to your house and they said, okay, I'm gonna come. And then someone with a nicer, bigger house invited them and they said, hey, I'm gonna stay with them instead. How would you feel? Oh, they're going to the next best thing. He wants them to, to whatever the first opportunity is, stay there. Don't go chasing after every separate better thing that might be coming along. Stay with the first person to offer you hospitality and appreciate them. And I thought about that, and I wrote down here, that's a good rule of thumb for church attendance as well. There's a term we all know, we probably heard, church hopping. How many have ever heard that term? That's where you go to a church as long as it benefits you and this next best thing comes along, you go to that church. And, you, and when something better than that comes along, you go to that church. God says, find the church that I'm gonna call you to and stay there and appreciate and work in that church. There should only be like two reasons to leave a church. You move away, or three reasons. You move away, the church you're in does not teach the Bible, that should be a reason to leave. And the third one is you specifically know that God is calling you somewhere else. And it's not an emotional thing. What's the, there's an old adage, you never make a, never make a decision when you're angry or upset, right? When you feel God calling you to do something, it should not be emotionally involved. I mean, it may be, but it shouldn't be driven by that. In other words, you get hurt, and so now you think God's calling you elsewhere. Leaving a church should be an emotionally hard time. We've talked about this. It should be something that you don't do easily. 
If you feel God's calling you to do it, you, you don't want to do it, but you feel God's calling you to do it, and so you make the hard decision to move, but it should not be something that you do on an emotional level. So, he was telling the disciples, pick one place, stay there, and bless them and appreciate them and realize that that's, that's my best for you at this moment. Now, Jesus knew they would not be accepted by everybody they met. I mean, no people that don't like you. Yeah, battery pack's falling off. I gotta get a better clip. He wanted them to know that people aren't gonna accept them. Not everybody's gonna accept you. People will not always welcome me when you start talking about Jesus. How many found that to be true? You talk to people, you mention God, people are okay with that. You mention Jesus, eh, that's when it gets kind of sticky, right? Jesus is having them go out and do this ministry, but he knew what was going to happen to them when they came across other Jewish, other Jewish uh, people at the time. He would symbolize to the Jews that they were with Jesus. Now, why shake off your feet? Mark 6, 11 says, if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. Now, in Jewish custom, whenever the Jews left a Gentile area, they would shake the dust off their shoe because Gentile area to them was defiled. And they were walking back into Jewish territory and they wanted to get all the defilement off them, so they shook the dust off and then they walk into Jewish territory. And when Jesus is saying, when you walk out of a town that did not accept you, shake the dust off. And you're telling that town, you're defiled. You're defiled. You're not taking anything. They're, they're not receiving you. And so shake the dust off. You're leaving them to themselves. The NIV says it this way. If any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as what? A testimony against them. Believe me, when they shake off the dust and people see them, they're going to know exactly why they're doing it. And they're going to get upset about it. Their message of repentance can bring salvation but it will also bring judgment for those who don't believe. Again, two witnesses' testimony about that town's unbelief. How many have ever heard the phrase, ignorance of the law is no excuse? You're traveling down the road and you don't see a speed limit sign. Now, my little GPS will tell me what the speed limit is for that particular road, which is good. But if you don't see a sign and you're speeding, Hey, I didn't know what speed limit was. Guess what? You're probably still going to get a ticket. When you hear the message of the gospel, you are now without excuse. You know the law, you know the judgment, you know what the problem is, and you know the remedy. If you don't choose to do that, the Bible says now that's a testimony against you. You've heard it, and you've rejected it. Verse 12 says, so the disciples went out telling all that they met to turn from their sins. This is or should be the message from every church pulpit and every Christian. Repent, turn from your sin. Most translations say simply that, turning away from your sinful life. To acknowledge or agree with God that you are sinners and agree with God that you have to stop doing it. Now there's a difference between feeling sorry for your sin and repentance. You can feel sorry and not repent. In other words, you feel sorry you got caught, you feel sorry for, not do, for doing it, but that's not repentance. 
Repentance is actually knowing it's wrong, acknowledging that you agree with God that it's wrong, and you stop doing it. Repentance is acknowledging that God is right about you, and you are wrong about you. You turn around, and everything you've ever thought, God changes. And you realize that, yes, I'm a wicked sinner. God says I'm a wicked sinner. I agree with that. I'm going to stop doing it. I'm going to turn around and go the other way. I'm going to stop doing what I normally do my sinful activities. Now verse 13 says, and they cast out many demons and healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. Now there's three activities described in these verses. Preaching repentance, driving out demons, healing the sick. All three of these were done by Jesus at various points in his ministry. These guys were just extensions of Jesus' ministry. They were doing exactly what Jesus had done. And the great thing is they were just ordinary guys. Just, just fishermen and tax collectors and, as the Bible says, sinners. Aren't you glad that God doesn't pick someone who is altogether, has done anything, has done anything wrong? Because none of us would be qualified for that. These guys weren't trained seminary guys. They weren't scholars. They weren't rabbis or teachers or anything. God doesn't necessarily call those who are the best trained. He calls the ones who spend time with Jesus. Acts 4.13 says, The member of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men who had no special training. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. Nobody is below being called by God to do something for God. How many know that? Not one person here can say, you know what, God's not calling me to do anything. Because everybody has a particular ministry. Everybody can be called by God to do something. The scripture we had Diane read at the beginning, it's an encouraging word for those who think that God can't use them. 1 Corinthians 1.26. Remember, dear brothers and sisters, that few of you were wise in the world's eyes. Let me rephrase that. Remember, Dover Assembly, that few of you are wise in the world's eyes or powerful or wealthy when God called you. Instead, God deliberately chose things the world considers to be foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose those who are powerless to shame those who are powerful. God chose things despised by the world, things that counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important so that no one can ever boast in the presence of God. So in other words, you're sitting here, you aren't wise, you're foolish, you're powerless, despised, and you're nothing. You are qualified to work for God. You are qualified for ministry. Welcome to ministry. But look what God did with foolish, powerless, despised, and nothing people. Verse 13, and they cast out many demons, healed many sick people, anointing them with olive oil. The minute you think you're not qualified to help someone in the name of Jesus is the minute that God can use you to do exactly that. If you spend time with Jesus. Now, next week, we're going to see the news of what happened. That news, what they were doing, even reached the palace of Herod. Now, Herod, no friend of the Christian, no friend of the Jews, 
But the news of what they were doing in obscurity reached the highest level in government. And I wrote down here, whatever you do for God in obscurity is noticed by God in heaven. And in the end, that's all that matters. God is the one who's taking notes. God's the one who sees what you're doing in private, what your ministry is when no one sees it, no one recognizes it, no one pats you on the back. You're doing it because God called you to do it. You have a burden for it. And more often than not, you love what you do. There are times when you don't. But you do it for God. And the Bible says he's taking notes. And you talked about the crowns in your Bible study. That's when you're going to get acknowledged for all the work that you did. I remember when I was a kid, I'll close with this. I was in, I don't know, fourth, fifth grade. And I'm not an athletic guy. But I was in our gym class and I, the, the teacher, gym teacher said, look, you help me. I'm like the equipment manager, okay? You help me with the equipment. And, you know, when we give out the awards, we've got an award for you. Cool. So I do all the stuff. Awards day come and nothing. My name's not called at all. And I'm like, ah. And that's only for here. Can you imagine in heaven when God's giving the awards out and everybody's name's getting called except yours? You made it in. You didn't get nothing because you made it, as the Bible says, kind of by the skin of your teeth. The work we do here, we want recognized not here. We want recognized there. If we, get, if we never get recognized here or get a bunch of worldly honors here, the only thing that matters is that God sees what we do for him. Amen? Would you stand as we close this morning? Just bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. So how does it feel to be foolish and, and nothing? That's who God uses. He specifically said he uses that type of person. The one who thinks they can't do it. The one who feels ill-equipped, foolish, nothing. That's who God picks. When God picked David out of all his brothers, nobody thought David could do it. All his brothers were like, he's the runt. What do you want him for? That's who God picked. Never think that you're beneath what God can do, that you, that you don't measure up. Because the truth is, nobody measures up. And the more that we think we can do it on our own, is the more that we realize that we can't. It's only when we go in, knowing that I cannot do this without you, Lord. If I'm doing this, I gotta, you gotta go with me. Like Moses, Lord, if, if you don't go with me, Lord, I'm not going. So whatever God calls us to do, whatever ministry, whatever life choice God calls us to do, I'm not going, Lord, unless you go with me. And God will equip you as you go. Unfortunately, he doesn't lay out the plan beforehand. He says, trust me for today. And then tomorrow, trust me for that day. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never really got to the point where you've said to Jesus, I trust you. 
I realize that I am a sinner. I realize I'm far from God. Or maybe I think I'm close to God, but I'm, and I look at my life, I realize I'm not. I may be doing all the right things, saying all the right things, but I've never come to the point where I've sat down with you and said, Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. And I need you to save me. I need you to cleanse me of my sins. I need you to help me to repent of the sins that I do in my life now. If that's you, and you want to make that roundabout change, you want to just turn your life around. The Bible never says it'll be easy, but nothing that's ever worth it is really easy. And trust me, coming to know Christ is worth it. So if that's you and you want to make that life-changing decision now, I want you to raise your hand. Maybe you're here this morning and you, you've been a Christian for a while, but you're really not sold out. You come and you do the bare minimum. Or maybe you feel like God doesn't want to use you for whatever reason. but you realize that God is calling you. Whether you like it or not, God wants you to step up to the plate. You don't have to show your hands because every church has those folks who are kind of sidelined, they're hit and miss, but God wants you to be committed. And it's not that you're better than anybody else or worse than anybody else. God just wants you to be committed. And then God can do tremendous things through the basically committed person. So we're going to pray for you as well. So Father, we do come to you in the name of Jesus this morning. And we thank you for, first of all, drawing us to yourself that we are saved. That you were long-suffering with each one of us here. That our life was transformed because of what you did and accomplished in our heart and our mind and our spirit you changed us lord and we're so thankful for that we can go back but we don't want to go back we love it where we are we love it that we know you we love it that we're a part of your family and i pray that you would continue to fill each one of us with your holy spirit that we would be sensitive daily to the move and the the will of the spirit that every day you direct our thoughts our actions and allow our lives, what, no matter where we work, where we live, what we do, everything we do, Lord, can be an honor and a glorifying thing to you. Help us to do that. So when people see us, they'll realize that, as your word says, they'll look at you and see your good works and praise your Father in heaven. Let them see Jesus in the things that we do. Allow our lives to, to matter to those who don't know Christ. And allow them to want to know more. And I pray that you'd put us in a position to be able to explain that to someone and lead them to Jesus. And Father, we thank you for using us who are nothing, who are anything special. We just follow your, your will. And we thank you for that privilege. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. See you Wednesday night.